KPMG is proud to bring you Untold Stories in celebration of Pride Month. Learn more about why visibility of LGBTQ people is so important in PNG's new film, They Will See You, at greatbigstory.com. And it went through me um, like a, a lightning bolt. And um, it felt electric. I felt alive. And I felt connected in a way that I had not found connection, not even through gospel music, which is, you know, I grew up in the church. So I dove right in and got every piece of literature on him that I could find and, you know, ravished his anthology of music and um, have been following him ever since. Welcome to Entertainment Weekly's Untold Stories Pride Edition. I'm your host, entertainment journalist, social curator, and all-around fabulous human being, Travel Anderson. Over the course of these four episodes, we'll be talking to some of our favorite LGBTQ entertainers about the queer legends, icons, and contemporaries who've inspired them. We are here for Pride Month, and the ideas of pride, of visibility, representation, acceptance, affirmation, and survival, these are all so important at this particular moment in history. Queer art have fought to exist, to tell their stories, to have a platform. Our hope with this series is to uplift the voices of the artists we love today by telling the stories of the people who inspired them along the way. This episode is for all the theater nerds out there. Coming up, journalist Trey Graham explains how queer voices have shaped the history of American theater, and Matt Bomer gives a moving tribute to the legendary Larry Kramer. But first, EW staff editor David Canfield spoke with actor and singer, star of stage and screen Titus Burgess about his icon, Stephen Sondheim. And a quick note, all of these interviews were conducted remotely throughout May and June. Thanks so much for joining us, Titus. Oh, thank you for having me and happy Pride. Happy Pride uh, from afar. From afar. Virtual Pride. <laughs> happy Virtual Pride. Yes, a very virtual Pride. So you have chosen Stephen Sondheim. Uh, lyricist and composer, American theater extraordinaire, uh, as your sort of icon for this podcast. Of course, we know him as the name behind Company, Sweeney Todd, Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, a recent epic video with Christine Baranski and Meryl Streep and Audrey McDonald, you name it. Yes, of course. Um, you have said that Sondheim is a religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to start there. What does that mean to you and, and why did you choose him? Religion comes from, I think, the, the Latin word meaning <clears throat> quite literally to rejoin. Um, and that is what he does. Um, he, he connects, like, quite, like, quite literally like ligaments. He connects uh, the dots. Um, he connects all parts of the um, human condition so effortlessly and rehashes them out uh, for the world in in such a complex yet accessible way. I don't know. I don't know of any other composer that um, is able to um, composer lyricist that is able to speak to the heart of uh, humanity um, so seamlessly um, and. If you know Sondheim, you are um, you are a devout follower um, and and worshiper, if you will, of um, of his ministry. Um, and I have long since uh, been a member of that church, if you will. And um, I, I came to know him. I was twelve years old, I believe, and um, we were. 
um, it was the summer and my mom would have to work. And so I would spend um, the summers with my grandparents. Um, so I grew up on a farm and we would be outside in the fields, uh, you know, and I'd be feeding the hogs and such. Well, one day it, uh, it started to rain. It was a huge thunderstorm. And they went inside and they took a nap, my grandparents, and I decided to watch um, PBS. They got two stations, ABC and PBS, and they had a, a wire hanger for the antenna. And on PBS, um, those uh, great performances that they often show, um, was Sunday in the Park with George. Um, a terribly sophisticated musical that a 12-year-old probably shouldn't be watching, let alone, you know, would understand. Um, and uh, and I didn't understand it, uh, to be to be honest, but I, I understood the sonic, um, energetic atmosphere that was happening. And it went through me um, like a, a lightning bolt. And um, it felt electric. I felt alive. And I felt connected in a way that I had not found connection, not even through gospel music, which is, you know, I grew up in the church. So I dove right in and got every piece of literature on him that I could find and, you know, ravished his anthology of music and um, have been following him ever since. So given all that research you did, I suppose, what, what are some of your favorite stories that you learned about him, some details of his life and, and of his work? Um, who his mentors were, um, you know, um, the Hammerstein, um, and uh, he had a volatile relationship with his mother, um, and uh, right up until the end, um, and I feel like I, I, when I was watching this documentary, um, I think it's called Six by Sondheim, um, he even said that she blamed him uh, for her divorce. Um, and, and, um, that he, she wished that he wasn't born, um, and that she didn't want him. And so, you know, he, um, and they put him in, um, uh, boarding school and he quite enjoyed the structure, uh, and, and thrived in it, he said. And I just found it so fascinating, you know, for a child not to be able to feel love from a mother, you know, that is a traumatic, devastating uh, thing to endure. Um, and so I always found it fascinating that he was able to write about love so thoroughly. But I guess where uh, he lacked love um, from human to human, he found obviously in music. So you did your first fully staged concert earlier this year at Carnegie Hall. really told your whole life story through the lens of Sondheim in a way. That is correct. What did you discover really about, about yourself and in going back and looking at, um, at your life through that lens and, and how he touched it through the years? I, I always thought it was uh, an unlikely pairing. I mean, there's really no reason in the world that I would have, that I should have come to know this man. Um, uh, you know, growing up in the South, being a little gay boy with not many uh, images um, that would reflect uh, who I am and would become, um, it left a bit of a deficit. And so um, when I discovered his music, 
um, whenever there was uh, any situation in my life, whenever there was great hardship, whenever there was great triumph, I slowly, and the more I got to know his catalogs, the more I realized like this man literally has written a song for every occasion. <laughs> <laughs> so I began to, to find myself in his music. I felt found, I felt uh, seen. Um, and that uh, sort of discovery about uh, being comfortable in one's own skin. I mean, he, in many, many ways, is probably the reason I came out. Because I've, I felt... Um, that I had all the tools just because of his music. Um, and, you know, he's never written any, any overt um, stories about homosexuality or coming out of the closet, but he's written such human stories um, and stories of fairy tale. And, you know, I, I the, the marriage of all of those um, composites, um, you know, helped uh, guide me in a way. In terms of your own work and, and his impact and influence on it, how did you find his influence? How did you find he was impacting your work? I was always drawn to more complex material that was probably too advanced for me at the time when I was attempting to perform it. <clears throat> so I think the greatest impact that he has had on my life um, and the greatest uh, influence he's had on, on my life is that I continue to work towards things that I don't think I can do. Um, and for whatever reason, he draws it out of me. I find his music is terribly um, uh, complex and full of chromaticism and dissonance and very dense um, chord structures and, and um, you know you don't just roll out of bed and sing it. <laughs> um, and so, um, I, you know, it challenged me in ways that um, other music did not. Um, and as a result, I found myself, and even to this day, um, working upward. Do you remember the first time you performed Sondheim professionally? Yes. Uh, he wrote a musical called Into the Woods. And a friend of mine formed a theater company down in Miami. Um, and I think there's uh, this big uh, theater down there called the Arsht. The Adrian Arsht Center. Yeah, yes, that's correct. Yes. They wanted to do Into the Woods. And so they had to write a letter to Mr. Sonan to um, ask permission uh, to allow me to play the role of a witch. I didn't think this man even knew who I was, let alone, you know, followed my career. Um, I mean, he's lots of better things to do. Um, and he wrote the loveliest letter, uh, granting me permission and, and, um, you know, was enthusiastic about, uh, um, me taking on the role. And, you know, there's nothing inherently, um, specific in terms of, uh, there's nothing inherently mandating that the witch be a woman. Um, and, uh, so I connected with the role and thought that I could make a, a case for it. And, and I'll never forget the first, uh, day that, uh, I heard the orchestra and, um, began singing, uh, you know, the score. It was, 
I don't know. I felt like I was in a trance. It was it was um, satiating and 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 hypnotic um, and terrifying. Um, and I at that point I had not done a theatrical piece in like five years. Now it's been eleven years since I've been on, on Broadway. So you know I was you know scared. It's a whole different set of skills, uh, friend. Um, but I'll I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that, that the sound. Um, and the, the emotions that uh, his music evokes, um, it's unparalleled. Given that experience, is there anything else of his particularly that you would love to tackle that you haven't? Yes. I think that a man should play Fosca. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> One thing that's interesting that you touched on was the fact that he did inspire you to come out in a way, even though his, his work is not ex- explicitly queer, but that it is human, as you say. I'm, I'm curious, like, being a queer artist and coming up with someone like Sondheim, reflecting on that, did it feel, does it feel important to you to have those kinds of queer models to look up to who are not necessarily telling queer stories, but are telling stories that are rich and human and that can connect in a deeper way like that? Ooh, this is a double-edged sword, this question. Um, that's a very good question. Yeah. Representation matters. Things would have turned out different for me, for my self-esteem, for my emotional health, for um, some of the earlier choices I've made in my life, some unhealthy choices, had I had a point of reference. Uh, um, my mother was ill-equipped to raise a gay son. She had nothing to compare it to. Um, so she was doing the best she could with what she knew. Um, you know, growing up in the church, we've all heard stories of, you know, how uh, queer people often shun um, from from uh, the church and you know which derails you know spirituality and has all sorts of horrible ramifications. Conversely, um, I think he wrote so he wrote so many stories about so many different kinds of people whose personalities and emotional states ran the gamut. Such a broad spectrum um, of. Uh, the human condition. I was able to identify uh, in many of his uh, pieces parts of myself that kind of came together to uh, help me feel more fully formed. Um, I gotta say yes and no. <laughs> like I, 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 I think I, I think I had a unique situation because. You know, I, while I may not have always been accepted uh, uh, or even uh, encouraged to be who I truly was at a young age, I knew that my family loved me. And I've always felt a sense of being found, um, feeling uh, seen. Um, And they supported my artistic um, endeavors. So I think that made it easier for me to see myself um, in works and in people 
uh, who were not uh, inherently queer or whose works were not um, inherently queer. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because I, I would imagine you at that age weren't even necessarily aware that Stephen Sondheim was gay. He didn't come out until pretty late in life. Exactly. Exactly. Didn't even have the emotional voca- uh, the, the vocabulary. Didn't even have words to, to um, give to it, you know? So um, once I learned who he was and who he really was, um, it shed an entirely different light on how I perceived his work. And it began to make sense to me why I was so connected to it because those subtextual messages of humans deserve to be humans, um, no matter what, um, love is complicated, uh, as in, as is in Sonny and Barbara George. Um, and, um, it just, uh, gives, he gives me permission to both succeed, strive for and fail and, uh, get back up again. So my last question for you is given his impact on you, um, I think it's safe to say, given, you know, your work across theater and particularly in stuff like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, that there are, there is a young generation of queer artists that will consider you an inspiration. Oh God. What does that mean to you? And, and what, what would you want to say to them, you know, in the context of everything we've been talking about here? Oh, um, whenever I hear something like that, it, um, I, Flattery and delight is are not the first emotions that I feel. What I feel is terror, um, because whether you acknowledge being a role model or whether you acknowledge your platform or not, there is uh, an inherent uh, responsibility that you have to. I never want to confuse anyone. I, I I'm all about the message. I, I never want. Um, I don't want my walk in life to contradict the messages that I give to the world. Um, and, uh, recently I've become aware of just how important that is. Um, and so I guess I would say in times of great dis-ease, um, be kind to yourself, your subconscious, your mind is doing everything it can to catch up with, with, uh, the demands uh, you are placing on it. And that is something that I didn't know as a young man. Um, and I would place these unrealistic expectations on myself and, um, you know, would often create disappointment for myself just because I wanted everything so fast and I, you know, I, instant results. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, allow, allow for the space in between, allow for the, universe to, to dance with you a little bit. And also don't consider inactivity, especially for actors who are wanting that next gig and are busting their, their tails. If there are long stretches of time where, uh, you aren't working, as long as you are going to those auditions, you're taking class and you're doing your part. Um, don't consider, uh, inactivity as, inactivity. Uh, just like we have to go to sleep at night to, you know, rejuvenate and restore ourselves. Those moments uh, of pause are equally as important as moments of, of uh, great uh, activity and working. So uh, all of it, all of it is a recipe 
for uh, your, success, your success ultimately, I think. Be kind to yourself. I love that advice from Titus. And if you want a little bit more of him, particularly singing some of Sondheim, there are two stellar performances on YouTube that you can check out. One of Stay With Me from Into the Woods and the other Meadowlark with Patti LuPone. And of course, you can see him as always on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix, Dishmantled on Quibi, and the new animated musical comedy Central Park on Apple TV+. Now, we wanted to let Titus talk about Sondheim in his own words, but also wanted to provide some, some context, if you will, for Sondheim's importance in American musical theater. For that, here's journalist Trey Graham. I'm Trey Graham, and I was a cultural critic and arts editor for a long, long time at places like NPR and USA Today. Right, so who is Stephen Sondheim? Stephen Sondheim is, without question the most influential voice in American musical theater of certainly of the 20th century and so far in the 21st century. The one exception, I would have to say, is probably Oscar Hammerstein. And that's only because he was Sondheim's mentor. Sondheim always credits Hammerstein with sort of taking him under his wing, basically adopting him, and teaching him about the theater, teaching him to love theater in a lot of ways, because that wasn't Sondheim's first love. But Sondheim took from Hammerstein, from Rodgers and Hammerstein, and built an entirely new vocabulary for musical theater, not least a vocabulary that's as much about harmony as it is about melody, and a vocabulary that's not about bright golden hazes on meadows and beautiful mornings. It's about the interiority of people's emotional lives in a way that I don't think any other composer for the musical theater, and certainly no other lyricist for the musical theater, has ever been able to match. Well, as Titus Burgess uh, was saying, he had a really terrible relationship with his mother. <laughs> um, and he's a nerd. He's, he's deeply fascinated with puzzles and games. And I think he's, he's also got a mathematical brain. And when you know that about him, it shows up in his work. You can hear it in the music. And you can pick it up in the lyrics, the way he's the way he's fascinated with the mechanics of rhyme. So I think that's a that, that's a super important thing to understand about him is his his nerdiness about words and the way things fit together, the way puzzle pieces fit together, and the way math works. Um, he studied with a fairly avant-garde uh, composing teacher when he was in school. And I think that absolutely has affected the way his music sounds because it's just not like anything else. It's complicated and it's always, the pieces of it are always pulling at each other and away from each other before it comes back together. And I think that's, when, when it does come back together, the emotional payoff of those moments is so great. It's so rich. Um, and again, that comes back to his fascination with harmony. And he, he's on record as talking about how harmony is so much more interesting than melody because harmony is about connection and things fitting together. Um, and that 
to me, uh, and, and certainly to him, is more interesting than simply a beautiful melodic line. But it's not like he doesn't write melodies. A show like Passion from the 90s is one long melody. Ended by a word in the dark. Oh, my love, oh, my so darling. It's just extraordinary. It's just an incredibly complicated melody. So I suspect the show that most people um, these days know of sometimes is Into the Woods, which is this sort of fractured fairy tale um, that breaks itself apart in the middle and kind of starts over again, um, or at least finds a future for these fairy tale characters after Happily Ever After. Um, that's not very happy at all, right? They learn about the darker side of life. But I think the show of Sondheim's that people really need to know, if they don't already, is Sunday in the Park with George, which is this absolutely extraordinary piece about the painter Georges Seurat uh, and his great work, Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte, which is in the Art Institute in Chicago, um, it imagines a, an interior life for this painter and his mistress, a woman named Dot, and how his fixation on his work sort of tears their relationship up and how she decides to move on. Eventually, a couple of generations later, one of George's descendants uh, is given permission to move on from his obsession with his work and whether his work is succeeding or not. It's an imperfect musical, as some of Sondheim's are. A lot of people think that the second act just doesn't fit with the first act. But I think you know, that's one of the things that's great about it, is that it's its reach slightly exceeds its grasp. It is just full of stunning music, and the end of Act One uh, involves this theatrical coup um, where they create a picture on stage that never fails to just destroy the audience, no matter whether they've seen it before and they know it's coming or not. It's just spectacular. And then beyond that, the, the landmark works are so many that it's kind of hard to say where the tent poles are because it's like one of those Cirque du Soleil tents with 97 poles holding up a really big top because he's written so many extraordinary things. Company it was a musical that people didn't know how to take in when it first premiered because of the way it was structured as a series of vignettes. Merrily We Roll Along is a show that is never worked properly because it moves backward in time and people don't know how to parse it. Follies is probably the perfect musical. It's full of tunes that you know, even if you don't think you know a Sondheim song. I'm just a Broadway baby Walking off my tired feet A little night music, same thing. If you think you don't know Sondheim, you know Send in the Clowns, right? You may not even know that that song is from a musical, but you know that Send in the Clowns is a song that too many people sing in too many hotel lounges. Uh, and discovering that show and discovering how that song works in that show 
is one of the great emotional revelations. And it brings that song back as a character song and turns it from this sappy, overdone cabaret song that you never, ever want to hear again into a song that is the most emotionally wrecking, you know, just devastating piece of personal opening up. It's, it's astounding. It's astounding the way it works in the show. And we haven't even mentioned Sweeney Todd, which is an early show. Um, and just, again, like Folly's kind of a perfect show. Uh, bold and strange and terrifying and funny. Um, and, you know, I, it's hard to... It's hard to talk about Sondheim's influence because it's everywhere, right? It's, but you look at something like Sweeney Todd, which is this huge carnival of a show, bigger than life. Uh, The technical term for its genre is Grand Guignol, right? Um, But it's this big black comedy circus of a show with you know, if anyone has seen the movie, you know, it's Johnny Depp in weird makeup and Helena Bonham Carter in weird makeup and everything is dirty and grimy and there's blood. Everyone's just drenched in blood. The show is drenched in blood. It's a show about a murderous barber of all things. <laughs> and I will get him back even as he gloats. In the meantime, I'll practice on less honorable throats and my but it's also a show about institutions that have been deeply corrupted. And I look around at American pop culture in the earlier 20th century, and I see reflections of Sweeney Todd in things like uh, Desperate Housewives, which famously you know, used Sondheim lyrics for every single episode title, right? But that show is nothing if not a portrait of American society supposedly perfect American society, idealized suburban life, and the rot under the surface, right? The corruption that infects everything in it. Same thing for shows like Riverdale, right? Uh, Both of those shows run by queer men, who I promise you know a little bit about Sondheim. And I I just see Sweeney Todd in, in the oversaturated colors and in the overclocked emotions and in the and the 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 way that both of those shows at various times are awash in blood right <laughs> it's it's the most extraordinary thing and maybe i'm you know maybe i'm giving it too much credit but sondheim touches so much of our culture in ways that that many of the people who watch these final products won't understand unless they're also steeped in musical theater. But his influence is there. His reach is so vast. And that reach in the world of American theater is just, you want to talk about all pervasive. Everything from what used to be called the new generation of post-Sondheim writers, from Jonathan Larson, the composer of Rent, to... Janine Tesori and Michael John Lacusa and Ricky Ian Gordon and Jason Robert Brown, you know, all of those writers and and the way you hear Sondheim's influence in their work, and they'll tell you about it, 
but also people like Pasek and Paul, you know, the, the young people behind Dear Evan Hansen and behind uh, La La Land. The one thing about Sondheim that carries through every one of his shows is something that I think Titus uh, put his finger on. His shows are about outsiders. And you can say that to an extent about all musical theater, right? His, but Sondheim shows are deeply, deeply, deeply in touch with the outsiders, the misfits, the strange, damaged people who are struggling to love, especially Fosca, which Titus talks about wanting to play. Fosca is this and wants to play as a queer character. And there is something so right about that idea. I don't think Sondheim would ever allow it while he's alive, but um, there's something so right about that idea. Stephen Sondheim is somebody who went at least the first 40 years of his life without even coming out to himself and who didn't really talk about being gay in public until he was probably at least 60. He was our great elder statesman before he was ready to claim that mantle, uh, as opposed to people like Larry Kramer. Um, but he is in his way every bit as influential as a storyteller. All of us, gay and straight, go through a period of feeling like an ugly duckling and feeling like we're not understood. Queer people don't have a monopoly on that. We, we like to think that we're special in, in our outsiderness. But that is a common thread to human experience. And that's what Sondheim gets, I think, better than any composer or lyricist who has ever, ever lived. We also spoke with Trey about the long history and exciting future of queer playwrights. So there's this interesting period in the American theater where you've got the great white whales of queer theater writing uh, specifically about being queer, an activist theater, although some of them would probably not want it to be described that way. And I'm talking to people like Terrence McNally, Mark Crowley, who wrote The Boys in the Band, Larry Kramer, of course, who wrote The, Na the Normal Heart. But let's not forget uh, Arthur Lawrence, who worked with Sondheim on Gypsy and West Side Story. And, uh, of course, Tony Kushner and Edward Albee. All of, these, all of these men writing to one extent or another about being queer, less so Albee. But there was this flowering of explicitly queer theater where there were suddenly gay lives being dramatized on stage and they were at the center of these stories, not on the fringes. And they were sympathetic characters, not poisonous characters. And so these are the pivotal voices uh, between generations who sort of create new stages and new platforms for younger people, like people may know the name Terrell Alvin McCraney because he became famous when Moonlight won the Oscar, but he's also just this extraordinarily gifted playwright who's written a series of plays about young black men coming to terms with their sexuality, a trio of plays that draw on the, the traditions of the Deep South and of West African uh, Yoruba religious traditions in an explicit way. They call on myth and the gods of West Africa in a, in a way that you know, no one had ever done before in American playwriting. Um, just this extraordinary vision for a world that, you know, is his and his alone. 
And I, you know, I've talked exclusively about men here, but there's a obviously a rich tradition of women playwrights, probably the most towering of them being uh, Paula Vogel is an enormously important voice, plays like How I Learned to Drive. And then finally, uh, winning a Tony Award recently for Indecent, which is an explicitly queer play. In fact, the winner of the 2018 Paula Vogel Playwriting Award was Jeremy O'Harris, who made an enormous sensation in New York recently with Slave Play. And we haven't even talked about Taylor Mack, and I don't even know how to describe Taylor Mack. You know, Taylor Mack is a sensation. Taylor Mack lives in the realm, again, with to circle all the way back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, to, to the too-muchness, to the grand guignol of Sweeney Todd and Riverdale and uh, Desperate Housewives, to the oversaturated colors and the overclocked emotions. And Taylor Mack is just this spectacular idiosyncratic, individual, one-of-a-kind, sui generis voice who is deeply, deeply queer <laughs> and, uh, and uh, saying incredibly important things in the American theater right now. So despite the, you know, the sort of weird state of limbo that we find ourselves in right now with the, the COVID pandemic and Broadway and off-Broadway and even smaller theaters being shut down, uh, not just in New York, but across the country, and no one really knowing what the future of any theater, you know, any collective performance is really going to look like. Uh, I feel pretty confident that the future of queer theater is going to be incredibly rich and inventive and creative. And, you know, as always, the queers making theater are going to be right at the front lines, you know, high kicking in the direction of whatever is next. All right, beautiful people, we've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, actor Matt Bomer pays tribute to the iconic Larry Kramer. For marginalized people everywhere, visibility is vital. Dive into why LGBTQ representation is so important and meet inspirational people behind the movement in PNG's new film, They Will See You. From LGBTQ activists and community members to young people searching for their place in the world, every voice is valid and deserves to be heard. During Pride Month, join us as we celebrate their stories at greatbigstory.com. Welcome back to Untold Stories Pride Edition. The legendary playwright and activist Larry Kramer, who Trey mentioned, died as we were starting to work on this podcast. EW Digital Director Shana Naomi Crockmull spoke with actor Matt Bomer, who won a Golden Globe for his work in Kramer's The Normal Heart, which can be seen on HBO and HBO Max. I must have been 14 or 15 at the time. <clears throat> we had a really extensive drama library in my drama club where we had access to all the best plays going on on Broadway and off-Broadway. And I remember being really struck by the imagery on the cover of The Normal Heart and Destiny of Me. And I think I read Destiny of Me first. But, you know, being growing up in the Bible Belt in suburban Texas, I had no clue what the LGBTQ community was facing in terms of the epidemic. And so not only did it open my eyes to so much, um, it took the, the shame and the stigma out, out of being sick or struggling with HIV, and it made it human and real and relatable 
um, and immediate. And I was always, you know, it was every, Larry was everything that I was taught not to be as a kid growing up in a conservative environment. He was outspoken and passionate and tireless in his advocacy and um, angry and openly angry. Um, but at the same time, he was saying, no, we deserve every right. We deserve to not only love ourselves, but to take pride in ourselves and to fight, to stand up and fight for what we need to survive. So for me, I mean, I don't even know, remember where I was in my particular, you know, journey at that time, <laughs> but for me to see someone who was so proud and valued themselves so much and, and was telling other people to value themselves in our community, um, it made a really lasting impression with me. Let's talk about the, the making of the normal heart. Ryan Murphy told me how hard you campaigned for the role. He said it, it was that same passion that I had used to persuade Larry Kramer to give me the rights to the play. Was that the first time you met Larry? Was in the process of that? Yes. I just felt like it was a role that I understood and had understood since I was had first encountered his work. Um, you know, your job as Felix is, and I know it's just acting, but your job is to not only fall in love with the actor portraying Ned and Ned in the film, it's really to fall in love with Larry and all of the things that he embodied. And I think those are things that were always so appealing to me because they were so contradictory to how I had grown up and, and my experience of how I was allowed to be or taught to be. Um, they flew in the face of all convention. And for me, that's always been exciting in terms of um, romantic attraction. So uh, I think I understood Felix's background and where he came from growing up in the South and what he was fighting against and, and dealing with the stigma and shame of, of, of the illness at the time and coming to terms with himself via the relationship and learning to love himself more via Ned's passion and getting to a place where he's willing to marry a man. I mean, I, I can't think of an, another scene that took place earlier than that in terms of written work where two men are married. Um, so I, I think when you understand a character and a piece that implicitly, and it's something that's been, you know, embedded in your psyche for, you know, at the time it must have been 17 years or something, then yeah, I'm going to fight for the role. Um, if it's something that I can't really relate to, I, I don't think I would have done the same thing. Um, and I think Ryan saw that in me. And, and I think if you're going to play Felix, you better have some fight in you because... Not only are you influenced by Ned, but it, there are times when you have to go toe to toe with him. So it was something I was I wanted to fight for. And and I met Larry. Uh, he was doing, you know, he was in his must have been mid to late 70s. And he was still doing readings of new works or unearthing old works that he was doing a reading of. And I went to that and we spent some time together afterwards. Um, I brought him some cupcakes because I knew he liked sweets. I wasn't aware at the time, I don't think, that he was vetting me for the role or anything. I just wanted to meet Larry Kramer. And uh, I was very nervous and 
very excited. And, and we had a cupcake together and we talked and laughed. He was very funny and uh, had still had very strong opinions. But um, I think was probably a softer version of the Larry that I had encountered in his plays and heard about and um, certainly during his time with ACT UP and all of that. Um, he's He was definitely someone where it wasn't there wasn't anything strident about his nature. He had opinions, but it, when you were conversing, it was a dialogue. He was as good a listener as he was a talker. We often forget that he's an Oscar-nominated writer. Of course, he's curious about the human experience, and no writer worth their salt is only about pushing their agenda. They're open to the human experience and, and, and letting it inform their work. And he was tender about it, like in a way that I think like, is hard maybe for people to imagine with the rhetoric of it. Like he could be so angry and, and so fierce and righteous about it in a really beautiful way, but he could also be very funny and very like sly and very yes. loving. Wickedly funny, very tender. He, and, and we needed the anger at the time. You know, anger is a very motivating force. And he, he was the clarion call. Uh, he embodied silence equals death. He he called us all to arms and said, put your personal agenda and hangups aside and stand up and fight. Um, and I, I think countless numbers of people, myself included, owe our lives to him and owe where we are societally because of him and the others who fought bravely alongside him. He was on set some, right? Yeah. He was on set the first day. The first scene we shot was with Mark and I in the newsroom when uh, Ned comes to Felix to write a story and Felix remembers Ned, but Ned doesn't remember Felix. Um, and it was such a great day. Uh, I was just so loaded for bear. I'd been so ready to start work on this for so long. And uh, I was very nervous. Uh, because it was the first time Mark and I had worked together. We, we'd read through some scenes, but it was the first time we were really on set together. And and Larry was there at the monitor. Uh, and so I was, you know, just trying to push my nerves aside. And I was also really inspired to have him there and, and to, to experience him getting to see this work um, uh, live out on film for the first time. And so he was there that day. It's great moment. I have a picture of he and Mark and I together. Uh, and then one of the more special days he visited um, was a scene where the organization's doing really well and and Mark and Taylor's characters are really celebrating and there's a big dance. And uh, there's this moment that Ryan had staged, Ryan Murphy had staged so beautifully where um, queer couples all over the spectrum are dancing together uh, while the gay men's chorus is singing. And uh, it was so special for Larry to see that because I feel like he was responsible for us being able to do that scene in a lot of ways. And it was the heart of Larry. It was the tender aspect of Larry. But I am so glad we were able to put that piece on film uh, obviously, his work will live on on stage forever. Um, but to have it on film and to see, I, I felt like Mark captured 
so many elements of Larry perf perfectly from during that time. Um, his irascible nature, his passion, his loyalty, his commitment to the cause, his courage. Um, and it's there for all time. So I feel like there's a piece of Larry that will be there for all time for people to see. I read that he had come to see you in Boys in the Band. Or when is the last time you saw him or got to spend some time with him? That was the last time I saw him. He and David came to the opening of Boys in the Band. And we all, uh, my husband Simon and, and David and Larry and I all rode together to the after party and uh, laughed and, and talked. And What was his review of the show? Um, I feel like Larry must have had something to say about it. It was positive. Yeah. It was positive. You know, there were opinions, but it was positive. Did he see Mart as a competitor? I don't, not at that point in the game, no. And actually one of my favorite pictures I have that I'll treasure for the rest of my life was bringing Larry into the after party. And there's a picture of when I reacquainted him with Mart. I'm not sure, if, I can't remember if they'd never met or if they had met, I think they'd met before, but it had been years since they'd interacted. But there's a picture of me standing behind them as they reunite for the first time. And I thought, oh my God, this is just iconic that these two are together. I mean, I feel like this year has been, I mean, this has just been a hard year, but this year has been a hard year for some of these just truly legends of queer theater. It's too much, you know, um, it's too much. It's just to, to lose Mart Crowley and then Terrence McNally and, and now Larry, it's just, so hard to make sense of it all and to understand why, you know, all of my heroes are leaving the building at this time. I'm sure there's some bigger reason for it. Um, I can't contextualize it right now. I just can't. I just hope that like Tony Kushner and some other people are like hermetically sealed away somewhere. Please, God. Because it definitely feels like all these voices of a generation who inspired me and informed me growing up are, are departing. What was your first encounter with Boys in the Band? I didn't know that piece very well. I have to be honest with you. Uh, when I saw the film, it's very, it's very serious and, and somber. And um, then all of a sudden, when you put it up in front of an audience, there's uproarious laughter and you realize you're all at this party together. And then the party turns and you're all stuck at that party together, <laughs> which is the great thing about doing the piece. It's my favorite thing about doing it on stage. And honestly, I love doing the film and it was a, um, an amazing experience and a different experience because it's a more intimate medium, but nothing can really compare to doing the play because especially when you have Jim in it and, and, and Zach and people like that, because I think people were coming expecting to, you know, have a party with Sheldon. And then all of a sudden <laughs> things just turned, you know. Um, but it was remarkable getting to watch that group of actors in both mediums um, portray those roles because so much of the character I play is, is a watcher. He's an observer. And so my job was to watch them every night and to watch them every take when we were filming. I'm trying to just think about how, like, how do you explain how 
queer theater is as an experience. <laughs> you know, I honestly, I was reminded of it doing Boys in the Band on Broadway. In what way? It's such a queer community and it's such an embracing community for people on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. And I had forgotten um, being on film sets where oftentimes you're the only queer person or the only openly queer person anywhere in sight. To be in that community and embraced by it and a part of it and able to be 100% your most authentic self and feel completely comfortable doing so was just, for me, a real breath of fresh air. Not that I don't on film sets as well, but I don't necessarily experience a great deal of camaraderie in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. For people who did not get to know Larry, what do you think he would want future generations of young queer people to know? I think it's all there in his work. If you read particularly obvious, I'm, I go back to these two pieces again and again, the destiny of me and the normal heart. He was able to humanize an experience our community was going through and make it relatable to any audience. He taught us to stand up for ourselves, to be angry when we need to be angry, to fight when we need to fight, to stand up when we need to stand up. And at the end of the day, to love and support each other through the most unimaginable circumstances. And he lived that. Like we said, he, he, he walked it and he talked it. And even when I met him, he, even though it was a softer version of Larry, he still had that fire and that heart. Larry Kramer definitely lived a full life and we're all the better for it. You can watch The Normal Heart on HBO and HBO Max. And Matt Bomer can next be seen in Netflix's adaptation of Mark Crowley's play, The Boys in the Band, out later this year. All right, people, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to Untold Stories so you don't miss the next episode where we'll be talking about Dragon Ballroom with special guests Lena Waithe and Justin Tranter. Make sure you're following EW on Twitter at EW as well as on Instagram and Facebook at Entertainment Weekly and go to EW.com slash pride for all of Entertainment Weekly's LGBTQ coverage. I am Travel Anderson and you can catch up with me on Twitter at Travel Anderson or on Instagram at R. A-Y-Z-H-O-N. That's Rajon. Till next week, slay on. <laughs>